The National Desk, Conversations, America's News Now. I'm Jan Jeffcoat, and welcome to Episode 2 of the National Desk Conversations. Every weekday, we invite newsmakers on to our morning television broadcast to discuss topics everybody's talking about. On today's podcast, we revisit our conversation with former Democratic Governor of Virginia, Douglas Wilder. He came on just days after voters in Virginia picked a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, flipping the state from blue to red. We'll talk about the midterms and what Democrats can learn from this election cycle. Then we'll hear from RNC national spokesperson Paris Denard, who will weigh in on the reported rift between Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden, as well as their falling approval numbers. But we begin with the relationship between the U.S. and China and a warning from columnist and author Gordon Chang after the first virtual meeting between the two countries. After meeting virtually for three and a half hours, the White House reported a healthy debate, but no major breakthroughs between President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. My next guest says, quote, conflicts are not the result of the absence of conversation, however. They start when democracies waste time in meaningless talk. The world heard meaningless talk Monday night. Well, China expert and author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War, Gordon Chang, joins us right now. Good morning, Gordon. Welcome to the National Desk. Thank you so much, Jan. You know, I read your fascinating article in The Hill, and that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I wanted to get your takeaways regarding their chat, because in your article you said meaningless talk can lead to war. So then what did you make of their conversation? Well, the conversation produced very little. Um, what we saw, for instance, was uh, some great uh, sound bites and the rest of it. But I'm worried that in this particular time, when China is got its troops deep into Indian-controlled territory, when it's threatening Taiwan and others, when China's friend Russia has got troops massed in Ukraine, is pressuring Poland, a NATO member, that the type of words we needed to hear from President Biden would have been much more stern, would have been warning both China and Russia. Because we're at one of those moments where the international system could easily devolve into conflict on both ends of the Eurasian landmass. Right, and in fact, China claimed President Biden denounced Taiwanese independence and warned the U.S. was, quote, playing with fire in the South China Sea. Now, the White House released a statement strongly opposing any move to alter the, the status quo in the region or, or undermine the stability of peace in that region. But this is so important because you also mentioned Russia. Russia has 100,000 troops now on the border with Ukraine, and we're talking about two huge superpowers. You wrote in your article that these two two huge superpowers are probably not acting independently. So, so what are you inferring? Why, why do you believe this might be a coordinated effort? Well, China and Russia have worked very closely together over the course of a decade. They coordinate their military activities. And I think it's more than just coincidence that we're seeing crises at the same time. And it's not just China and Russia, it's also their proxies. So we could see problems from North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, Algeria. So this is a, a much broader than just East Asia. Uh, when we see both China and Russia talking in these same terms, we have to believe that they believe that uh, the Biden administration will not oppose them. And that uh, gives a test to President Biden, who right now has not, I believe, shown the right tone with regard to Beijing and Moscow. And by the way, I think it's incumbent on President Biden to actually publicly say what he said about Taiwan 
not and to contradict the Chinese. And you also mentioned, too, that you're talking about the proxies and you mentioned Iran and also North Korea and South Korea. How important is this? How important is what's happening right now that we need to be paying attention not just to China but also Russia at the same time? This looks like the beginning of a world war. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be that. Um, but we have heard in the past words from Americans that have contributed to destabilizing the world. So, for instance, in 1990, we actually told Saddam Hussein that we were not going to protect Kuwait. And eight days later, um, Saddam invaded Kuwait. And what did we do? We then rushed to Kuwait's defense. With stern words from April Glaspie, our ambassador to Iraq, this would have been unnecessary, which means we would have had no Iraq war after that which means we would have not had the troubles in the Middle East. And you can say the same thing about the Korean War, where Dean Acheson drew our Western defense perimeter that did not include South Korea, which then Kim Il-sung, the North Korean leader, invaded shortly thereafter. So it's words that count from America. We're not hearing the right words at this particular moment. You know, a few months ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the relationship between the two countries the, the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. So at this point, Gordon, where do we go from here? Should we anticipate anything to change, do you think? Where we go from here is going to depend on the way the Biden administration deals with both Moscow and Beijing. And I'm afraid that we're looking for cooperation where we should be imposing costs. Let's remember that China um, deliberately spread a virus beyond its borders. That's 765,000 Americans who have been killed. We know that China is behind the fentanyl gangs. That's maybe 53,000 dead Americans last year. Um, when we talk about trying to develop cooperation um, with China, which has killed so many Americans, that is grossly inappropriate. Gordon Chang, great to talk to you, and I hope we can have you on again. I'm sorry we've run out of time right now. But, uh, again, Thank you so much. Fascinating article, too, in The Hill, and I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you, Jan. You're listening to our weekly podcast, The National Desk Conversations, featuring newsmaker interviews from The National Desk, America's News Now. Next on episode two of our podcast, former Democratic governor of Virginia, Douglas Wilder. The GOP hoping the red wave in Virginia will carry over into the midterms while Democrats who control the presidency and both houses of Congress having a really hard time passing their progressive agenda, showing the deep divisions within the party. Joining us right now, former Democratic Virginia Governor Douglas Wilder. Governor Wilder, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to have you this morning. Good to be with you, Dan. So not only did Virginia elect a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, but they also took control of the Virginia House of Delegates. And I read in a recent article that you argued Virginians are showing party affiliation does not matter. So, Governor, what did the GOP do right when it came to the Virginia election? Well, I think in this instance, Glenn Youngkin really made the case for the people of Virginia, not Republican or Democrat but the people, he spoke directly to the people, he spoke to issues, and he embraced that ideology. He did not bring in people from around the country to campaign for him. He didn't bring in surrogates. He spoke to the people and he spoke to the issues of education. He spoke to the disparities relative to historical denial of funding for HBCUs. And he 
spoke, as I said, for the continuing involvement of letting the people be a part of government. Mm. They are. Yeah, and, and you know, Governor Wilder, uh, Republicans did flip several House of Delegate seats, including four <clears throat> seats currently held by members of the Black Caucus. Prior to the election, you questioned if Democrats did enough to earn the vote of black Virginians. As the first African-American to be elected governor in the U.S., what did you make of the outreach to minority voters in Virginia? What should Democrats focus on and do differently ahead of the midterms? Well, I never ran as a black candidate for any office that I've ever sought. I ran as a candidate to represent all the people, and I showed how we needed to reach out. I don't think the Democratic Party in this last election has shown that uh, to the extent that many things have gone on, address historical black colleges being one, the employment opportunities being another. But when you consider that the Republican Party took all three statewide offices, something unheard of for in, in such a long time, and elected a person, a black person and a Latino, when, when the Democrats themselves had opportunities to elect one black person or to put that person on the ticket, they did not. The other thing that was very important was the opportunities for someone else to be allowed a chance. And the Democratic candidate said he didn't see that he needed to do that. A man that they gave the opportunity to, to be elected governor of Virginia, he did not afford that opportunity for them to show that they could do it too. And so I think the biggest thing that the Republicans need to do, as well as the Democrats, reach out to all of the people of Virginia, speak to those issues. One issue that you said Democrats will pay for at the ballot box next year is if they start cutting taxpayer-funded checks to migrants because it will disenfranchise voters who felt like they played by the rules and got nothing. How much <laughs> of an issue is this for Democrats, do you think? You and I will see how large it really is if they do that. It's unimaginable that anyone would believe that you're going to cut a check for someone. For what? What did they do to earn that? When you consider the historical disenchantment or disenfranchisement of people and the disenchantment of those who have felt that they've played by every rule in this country and still have not been afforded many of the opportunities in education and jobs, and to bring someone in who did not come in properly and to write a check for a dime has to be questioned. And where does that money come from? You're taking my money to pay for things that my people never got and don't look for now, but all we want for is a, is a chance. It would be the biggest mistake that Democrats could make. And I hope that we don't live to see it, because I hope they don't do it. Governor Wilder, a number of elections across the U.S. either flipped from blue to red or, or were extremely close. We saw that in the New Jersey governor's race there. What does that say about perhaps the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? I think the Democratic Party ought to get rid of wings. I think the Republican Party needs to get rid of wings. There aren't any wings to the opportunities to live, to, to breathe, to be educated, to enjoy the fruits of life. That, that should be something that both parties should be united in engaging in. And as long as Democrats believe they've got to cater to certain aspects of the party, they're going to lose. I don't know 
the, the progressive party is a new thing to me. The progressive wing is a new thing. I've never seen so many caucuses in my life. <laughs> and what justifies a caucus? What makes a caucus? And what and who does that caucus speak for? I think it's a big mistake. And I think the Democrats ought to pay attention to the American people and appeal to them, not to the caucus. Governor, very quickly, what key pieces of advice would you offer for uh, newcomers like Yunkin? Uh, what do you wish someone would have told you ahead of taking office? Uh, money. Keep your eye on the money. Let no one tell you that it's manageable to the extent that you don't have to worry about it. I've spoken to the governor-elect and told him that I wish someone had told me how much money we had so I would know what to deal with. But we managed. We made out. But that's the one-word definition of politics that I have. Money. Keep your eye on the buck, and you will find out where all of the action is. All right. Governor. I'm sorry, go ahead. Spend it wisely. Governor Wilder, always a pleasure to see you. Thanks so much for joining us here on the National Desk. Hope we can see you Thank soon you, and chat Jan. again. Good to be with you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you so you. much. You're listening to the National Desk Conversations. I'm Jan Jeffcoat, and this is our weekly podcast featuring newsmaker interviews taken right from our morning news broadcast, the National Desk, America's News Now. Our final interview on this podcast, the RNC's national spokesperson, Paris Denard. Reports this morning of growing tension between President Biden and VP Kamala Harris leading to all kinds of speculation. Her future, his future, but it is the poll numbers that are the biggest issue for Democrats as the president's and vice president's approval ratings go into a free fall. Joining us right now, the RNC's national spokesperson, Paris Denard. Paris, great to see you as always. You tweeted recently about the president's approval ratings falling 12 percentage points. The only person polling with an even lower approval rating is VP Kamala Harris. But tell me why her approval ratings are so much lower than his and what you're hearing on Capitol Hill with these reports that, that now she's allegedly being sidelined. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And I will tell you that Vice President Harris's poll numbers are lower because the administration from the very beginning put her out in the forefront as being one of the leaders on these major issues. Uh, she was put in charge of the border crisis, as the borders are, and we've seen her show absolutely no leadership uh, in terms of curbing the onslaught of illegal immigrants that are coming into our country at record numbers. It's a problem, it's a crisis, and she has not led. On all the other issues, like voting rights and other things that she was supposed to be managing, she just has not uh, delivered for the Democrats, and they're upset about it. I'm glad that she hasn't delivered, because all the policies and plans that she would put forth are actually damning for the country. But ultimately, people are looking at her and saying, where is the leadership? Where is the Kamala Harris who's supposed to be the last person in the room holding Joe Biden accountable and doing the great big things that she signed up to do working with him? So it's a combination of her uh, working with him in a, in a, in a, as a team, but not delivering on the big issues that she was tasked with managing. Well, 62 percent of Americans in a Washington Post ABC News poll say that Biden is out of touch with everyday Americans. And a recent Associated Press poll shows that his approval rating with black Americans fell from 86% in July to now 64%. And, and Paris, you've long said he's losing his Democratic base, especially with black voters. Why is that? Uh, it's very clear. Black voters are like every other American voter here. They're looking at the status of our economy and they're wondering, 
why things aren't getting better. Uh, this Biden administration promised to do things that they haven't delivered on in terms of police reform, fall, fell short. In terms of national security, uh, really did a horrible job in Afghanistan and the borders wide open. When you look at economic security, uh, the inflation is out of control. When uh, black families go to the grocery store, they see uh, the prices are more expensive. Everybody is going to pay more for Thanksgiving. When they fill up the gas tank, it's more expensive. Back to school supplies, it's more expensive. And the supply chain is, is, is hurting so many black Americans. And so the last point that really set the tone for the disdain that a lot of black Americans feel towards this president right now is the unconstitutional forced vaccine mandate, which is pitting people against uh, their employers, forcing people to decide whether they want to take a vaccine that they just are not comfortable with taking and, and having to put food on the table by having employment. This administration is working against so many people and the black community is very disappointed. And one thing we've talked about is funding for historically black colleges and universities. It is expected to be included in the president's Build Back Better agenda. What do you make of the administration's efforts when it comes to funding for HBCUs, especially with Vice President Kamala Harris being a graduate of Howard University? Well, you know, the bar was set extremely high with President Trump working with Republicans, uh, having uh, put into place through legislation permanent funding for HBCUs and increased HBCU funding by 13%, which is historic. Uh, and just a few weeks ago, you had a lot of uh, people on Capitol Hill, especially in the Congressional Black Caucus and other black HBCU leaders, uh, very upset with the administration for uh, not living up to their, uh, their, their, their call to fully fund HBCUs in these upcoming bills. And so you had some members of the CBC, Alma Adams, threatened not to support these spending bills because of the lack of funding for HBCUs. So it's interesting to me that despite the fact that Kamala Harris is an HBCU graduate and so many HBCU graduates on the Hill, they still were, were coming up short. So I think what they're trying to do now is pander and, and, and clean up for the fact that they tried to cut HBCU funding, which is wrong. Because they should look at the model that was set by President Trump, working with congressional Republicans to get things done to support HBCUs, and that's what we see the RNC doing, especially supporting candidates like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, who said he was going to fully fund HBCUs and all of his budgets in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Speaking of which, it was a big win for Virginia uh, with the RNC. In a recent interview, DNC chairman Jamie Harrison shared his feeling that the pressure for Democrats to show up in 2022 is really big right now. He says it's a big weight. It is a tremendous weight. My experiences are the experiences that we need at this moment to help really thread a needle. This is going to be challenging. How do you think this past election cycle shake up, uh, uh, shook up the, the Democratic Party and, and perhaps reveal some weak points within it? Yeah, Jamie Harrison should be nervous. He knows there's something about losing, lost that Senate seat. But I tell you what, uh, there's a red wave happening and all Democrats are nervous about it. When you look at the type of campaign that Glenn Youngkin ran, the diversity of the field that was put on, in place with uh, Jason Myers as, a, as the attorney general and Winston Sears as the new lieutenant governor, um, they should be nervous because we had Republican candidates talk about issues that impact the, the people of Virginia in a great way. Elimination of the grocery tax, uh, moratorium on the gas uh, increase that's going to help so many Virginia uh, residents. We are seeing a new wave coming up of Republican leaders that are diverse, that are talking about issues that Americans care about. And the Democrats are running scared because they know their policies and their plans are so out, so far away from the mainstream of where Americans are. The progressive agenda is being rejected. And so I can see why the Democrats are running nervous, because the red wave is coming. It's already here. And we're going to take back the House, the Senate, and we're looking forward to 2024. All right, Paris. Great talking to you, as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
That's episode two of the National Desk Conversations. Join me each weekday morning from 6 to 11 Eastern for the National Desk, America's News Now. Check your local listings or watch on the STIR app. Our podcast comes out twice a week with fresh newsmaker interviews. The conversation continues. Until next time, from the National Desk, I'm Jan Jeffcoat.